0: Oh, good morning, gentlemen. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And as Lon said, uh, we're having a service here uh, next Thursday. Uh, you can sleep in on Thursday if your wife will let you. And come on over here at 10 o'clock. We'll have Amen Bible study right there in the sanctuary. I'll be teaching 10 o'clock in the morning. Bring your family. It really is a special service. If your church doesn't have one, just come and join us at 10 o'clock. We'd love to have you. And that'll be kind of our Amen, Amen late style, Thanksgiving style. And then let's do remember to bring coats and outerwear for some of those uh, downtown that don't have them. As uh, you walked in this morning, it was a little chilly. It's really chilly if you don't have a coat. Uh, see if we can help some folks this week. I'm going to bring in a couple of coats myself. Uh, Lord, help me to remember. How about those Grizzlies? Ah. <laughs> All right, Man, that's good. Our problem in, in life is not that we don't have a good NBA basketball team. I want you to know that. Uh, and for those of you that were at the Young Life Banquet the other night, our problem is not that we don't have a good governor either. Uh, Bill Haslam really gave his testimony last Thursday night. It was really just a, it's wonderful to hear that from those who are leading us. Uh, we ought to be very thankful uh, to have one of our brothers doing a good job in his office. Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Um, and we are looking at verse 25 and it reminds you where we've been Uh, This whole Sermon on the Mount is to talk to us about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And especially Jesus is comparing us to the phony religion that just surrounds them everywhere. The hypocrisy of the church is everywhere. People have a wrong understanding of what real followership of Christ means. And boy, does he ever lay it out here. He says that your lifestyle must be far better than the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, it must exceed it by a long shot if you're even to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So these hypocrites, these church people all around you, uh, not only are they a little bit off, they're, they're not even in the kingdom. So don't be thrown off by the institutional religion that's being put in front of you, he's saying to them. Furthermore, don't be thrown off by the pagan culture in which you live. They're going in an opposite direction. So he's constantly contrasting what's around them and saying to them, you must be different. You are the light of the world. You're shining into darkness. And there's to be a contrast between you and the surrounding people. Just like when we looked at Deuteronomy and Moses was telling the people before they crossed the Jordan and go into the Holy Land, look, there are a bunch of wicked, wicked, vicious people over there. And I've given you the law. So you can go into that land of the nations and, and be quite different. If you assimilate into their culture, you've lost it and you've ceased to become God's people. Jesus is really doing the same thing. He's on a, Moses was on Mount Nebo, Jesus is on another mountain. And he's giving them uh, the, the guidelines for what it means to follow God in the midst of a very confusing and dark world. Well, he starts off, of course, by showing what real righteousness is. You remember in chapter 5, we looked at various contrasts. He says, Now you've heard the hypocrites teach it this way. This is what the law means just outward conformity so that everyone thinks you're conforming to the law. No, that's never what God intended. He says, Your law abiding begins with a heart. So that your sexual life doesn't just begin with your hands or your feet or, your, or some other organ, it begins with your mind and your heart. What are you thinking about? What do you want? Where are your lusts? Are you lusting after women or are you lusting after God? He says it starts right in here. He says uh, likewise with, with keeping the uh, sixth commandment. If you're not going to murder someone, it's not just a matter of not wringing his neck and killing him. It's a matter of loving him in your heart and so on. You know, you know the story. So he says your ethic is an intensely internal ethic. It's what we call indo religious It's not ecto-religious. It's not just your behavior on the outside. It really involves your heart. Then we got to chapter 6, and we see that to follow Jesus means that your piety is not to demonstrate your religion to other people. Your piety is simply to get to know God and to please Him so that your whole devotional life is directed upward. There's this big draft in your life. Everything just goes up. When people know you, they sense an upward draft. Because you 're seeking to please one audience, the audience of God himself, so all of your prayer, all your fasting, all your giving to the poor, all of your charitable giving, all your tithing and offerings all of this is done in secret for the father's pleasure. you have a vibrant relationship with him that defines you, and it you could really you couldn't care any less what others are thinking about it you 're only caring about what he thinks then when we got to uh, verse uh, 19, through the end of this chapter that we're going to complete today, before Thanksgiving, uh, we've seen that Jesus says, the way in which you deal with what we call mammon, or the things of this world, possessions, you're quite different from both the scribes and Pharisees and also the Gentiles. Uh, You're very different in the way you manage this. And we've seen, first of all, that Last week we saw that we manage these worldly things so that they won't manage us. We control them so they won't control us. And the way we control them is because we're being controlled by God. So you, have, you can only choose one master, but you're going to have one. Everybody has a master. So you're going to be a slave to the things of this world or you're going to be a slave to God. You must choose. If you're a slave to God, then the things of this world become your slave. You don't become their slave. So that's the first thing that Jesus says about dealing with the things of this world. And when we come to the passage today, beginning with verse 25 and going through the end of the chapter, we'll see that he continues that discussion about our relationship. First of all, he talks about our relationship to the law. Then he talks about our relationship to the Father. And now he talks about our relationship to the things of the world. And all of them are shaped by our relationship with the Father. But here when he talks about the things of the world, he's going to talk about a particular problem that every one of us has. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes up the issue of worry. And worry comes from worldliness. That's the whole point here. It's tied in with worldliness. So you think you've got all your finances managed just fine. But when you're still worrying, you haven't got them managed. They've got you managed. If you're anxious or worrying about anything in this world... It's got you by the short hairs. You don't have it. So this is another aspect of managing worldly things is to deal with anxiety. Now, let's look at the text and see what he says about it. He gives us a fairly long section on this. I mean, obviously, this is a big deal. It was plaguing the people in his time. And I tell you as a pastor, I see it plaguing people in our time, big time. All you have to do is look at the most popular drugs right now. How many of those are related to worry? I rest my case. Now let's look at chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. All right. Uh, This morning, I want us to look at the what and the why and the how of anxiety, of worry. First of all, what? The what is, don't worry. Don't worry. He says it three times in this these uh, verses that we just read. Don't be anxious. He's trying to make a point. Here's the point. Don't be anxious. It's a commandment. Now, here's the wonderful thing about a commandment. <laughs> a commandment boils everything down. It just gets it down to the bottom line. Commandments have a way of simplifying everything. And Jesus doesn't th- say... Okay, let's, let's deal with the various options that we can look at here. How you can reduce your worry just a little bit over here. How you can keep from increasing it over here. No, he just simply says, stop it. Don't do it. So that makes it real simple. Now, so the first thing about a commandment is it's nice and simple. It boils everything down. to just, yes, men love it this way. You know, women, they have all kinds of equipment, you know, switches and buttons and all kinds. We just got an off and an on switch. That's all we've got. So men have an advantage. Just off or on. It's binary. You know, it's just up or down. That's it. And he's saying, "Down with anxiety. Get rid of it. Bad. So just turn it off." You say, "Well, easy for him to say. He's in control of the, the cattle on a thousand hills. He he owns the whole universe." Well, we're going to get to that. That's the second advantage of a commandment. Whenever there's a commandment, there is provision for the commandment. All right. So if he tells you to do something then it is by His grace that He will enable you to do it. If He tells you not to do something, He will give you the equipment by which you may stop doing it. So it's good news when you get a commandment. The third good thing about a commandment is when He tells you to do something or not to do something, it's not only for His glory, which it is, and we'll see that, but it's for your good. So He is helping you out. He's simplifying it. He is going to give you provision for it, and it's going to help you out a ton. So, it's a good thing when he says, do not be anxious. I'm so glad that he says it that way. He doesn't beat around the bush, he just says it because there's a sense in which, as soon as he says it, he destroys it. As soon as he says to his people, do not be anxious, anxiety is destroyed. He's against it. He's going to take up our cause, he's going to destroy anxiety in our lives. Let me tell you something, gentlemen. When you get home to be with the Lord, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know where you're going when you get home, there will be zero anxiety. None. And so what he's calling you to do right now is to be more and more like what you've been made to be. That's where you're headed. So we're little kids right now struggling with all the the things in the playground. Now let's, let's just figure out what it means to be a full adult and let's start enjoying our heritage that he's given us. Now, if we look in the scriptures, we'll see all kinds of Uh, of commandments along these lines Uh, i've given you a few verses in the psalms which just simply remind us he is the one who provides for us Uh, david says you know i used to be young now i'm old but he said one thing i've never seen is one of god's people forsaken and i've never seen the righteous begging bread never seen that says david so those who have lived long enough with the lord they see that indeed Anxiety doesn't help us a bit, and there's no reason for it because God is our provider. When you look in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where is the Apostle Paul when he is writing that letter? He is in prison. And what are his provisions in prison? Well, you know, nothing. If your relatives and friends don't bring you food in prison, in in Roman prisons, you starve. If your friends don't bring you a cloak, You will freeze to death in the Roman winter. Uh, You have no provisions for the government when you're in prison. That's where Paul was. And he wouldn't have anything if these Philippian Christians hadn't sent their servant up there, Paphroditus, to take a a load of goods for the apostle Paul, and he's writing to thank them. But what else is he writing them to say? You know when he thanks them, he says, look, thank you for your gift, but I want you to to know something. There's a secret about me. Through Jesus Christ, I learned a long time ago to be content whether I have a coat or whether I don't. I've learned to be content whether I have food or I don't have food. I I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, Paul says. So I don't want you to think that I have to have you. Thank you for your gift. I really do appreciate it. But I want you to know I've been depending upon him and I depend upon him now. And one thing that brings me great joy when you brought that gift is what it means to you as much as what it means to me. Because when you give to your missionaries, you just made a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord himself. And he was pleased with it. So your provisions for me were actually an offering to him. And Paul takes great pleasure in what the offering is accomplishing for the donors more than even the recipient. That's what the release of anxiety does for you. It releases you to see the kingdom and to help other people, even when you're in physical need. And then Paul said to them right there, he said, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. So first of all, I'm determined to rejoice while I'm closed up in this prison. And then, he, then Paul says to them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends all human understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now here's the one who had every reason to be anxious, coaching them about why they shouldn't be anxious because, of course, they were surrounded by pagans who were marginalizing them, making fun of them, holding them in contempt. And they also were surrounded by by some government officials who had a bad habit of throwing Christians in prison. So he says, I don't want you all to be anxious. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm telling you that. I don't want you all to be anxious. Here's why. We've got prayer. And so we're going to thank God and we're going to petition Him. And then we're not going to be anxious. That was Paul's solution. When you get to Peter, you have the same thing. He says to them, look, he says, don't be anxious because you can cast all of your anxieties on Him. For He cares for you, Peter says. Here's the logic. The logic is that through prayer, you can just put everything on Him. And you're putting everything on the one who knows how to take care of you better than you know how to take care of yourself. And He actually loves you more than you love yourself. God doesn't waste His time in heaven saying you're condemning you. You condemn yourself all the time. You beat yourself up for dumb, stupid things you do. You think you're no good half the time. And you cover it up with your high-performance uh, lifestyle uh, because what you really doing is a massive cover up you 're trying to gain all this money and all this prestige and all this performance and all these awards so that you can cover up what you really know about yourself is you 're a louse, and so you spend all that time talking about yourself like that God never does doesn 't waste any of his time condemning you he, he takes all of his time and all of his energy loving you, cherishing you, and valuing you, so he loves you more than you love you he has more good in mind for yourself than you have for yourself. And so Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he you have there someone who actually loves you. You think your mother loves you? Well, let me tell you something. Isaiah said it this way, your mama may leave you at her leave you uh, when you're sucking on the breast. She may leave you behind, but God will never forget you, said Isaiah. You want to know how strong God's love is? It puts your mother's love when you were a, a nursing infant in the shade. That's how much God loves you. That's the reason that you cast your anxieties upon him. Some of you have heard me tell the story about the guy who was just a terrible worrier, Harry. He was just a terrible worrier. He was always just wringing his hands. looking. And one day his friend Bill came up to him and saw that Harry was just, he was whistling. Harry was whistling. Harry was walking around. He was whistling. He seemed to be happy. Just life had just obviously been completely transformed for him. So Bill says to Harry, Harry, what got into you? And Harry said, well, I found the right therapist finally. And he said, therapist, what did the therapist do for you? And he said, the therapist told me that he had me enumerate all the things I'm worried about. And there was a long list. I had about 50 things I was worried about. And then my therapist said, give me that piece of paper and just give those worries to me. He said, so I took that piece of paper and I handed it over to the therapist. (laughs) And You know, it's an amazing thing. Ever since then, I just don't have any burdens. I've just been so happy. I just gave them all to the therapist. And then Bill said to Harry, My stars. He said, that's pretty good. He said, how much did that therapist charge you? He said, $10,000. And Bill said, good grief, Harry. How are you going to pay $10,000? He said, I don't know. That's his problem. Uh, uh, Now, guys... In in a funny kind of way, that's sort of what the Lord is saying. Hey, come on. I've got I got the ball. You know, I'm captain of the team. Uh, I control the universe. I can take it. Give it to me and make a transfer. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the mechanism. Give it over to him. And when you don't, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to take drugs for ulcers and heart problems and... Uh, your your nerves. Now look, let let's let, let me make a statement about your nerves. We've all been born with different nervous systems. Mine, I just thank God for mine most of the time. Uh, but mine, I'm so such a a, a lughead. I can be in a restaurant and the waiter behind me will drop a whole tray full of dishes, crashing on the ground, and I'll move just like this. I mean, it doesn't even affect me. Uh, it doesn't my nerves just don't physically don't respond. Now that also means sometimes I'm insensitive to my wife. <laughs> you know, so, uh, I guess nervous people in some ways are more, more sensitive. They react more readily. Uh, so we all have positives and negatives about our nervous systems. Some of you, if the waiter had dropped that platter, you'd be hanging off the chandelier in about a half a second. Your nervous system is just built that way. So we all inherit different nervous systems. We also had, all of us had different rearings. And the ways that our parents reared us and made us look at the outside world has a lot to do with whether we worry about what that outside world is going to do to us. The sense of security or insecurity that our parents had about their own home usually affects us a whole lot about our, it's kind of our default position of how we think about the threat of the outside world. And once again, God just gave me a blessing. My parents uh, lived their lives in such a way that they did not leave their children with a lot of senses of insecurity uh, or uh, of worry. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, and I realize that most of us in this room do not have a combination of those two things. So sometimes it's a little easy for a, a person with a naturally calm nervous system and someone who had parents who nurtured and protected them uh, to say, don't worry. You know, what, you know Alfred E. Newman, let me worry. Um, But uh, some of us start in a very different place. And let me just say that there are some things in life that are not going to get fixed until we get home. And whatever your nervous system is, with its pluses and especially its negatives, those negatives are not going to get fixed until you get home, generally speaking. And now God can miraculously change our DNA. He can do whatever He wants to do. But normally, you're going to live... With your system the way it is, your body and your psyche, the way that it was shaped, you have a way of coming at life. But here's what Jesus is saying. Wherever your starting point is, doesn't matter where it is, I'm telling you where your end point is, and we all have the same end point. And furthermore, I'm telling you that wherever your starting point is, maybe you're a 1,000 miles away from home, We'll just start hiking. Some of you may be only 500 miles away from home. Start hiking. We're all hiking. We're all going towards Zion. So however far you are away from Zion, just start walking. And the point is not how far are you from Zion. The point is which way are you walking? Are you going in the right direction? So whatever your starting point is, it doesn't matter. It honestly doesn't matter at all. The Father takes no pleasure in whether your starting point is here or your starting point is here. The Father takes pleasure in where you're walking and whether you want Him or not. That's all that matters. So do not compare yourself to somebody else. That is a fruitless exercise. You may be doing a speed walk a thousand miles from Zion and some slob who who was born 200 miles from Zion is just kind of you know meandering around on his way to Zion. And the father's not more pleased because he started 200 miles from Zion and you a thousand. No, he's more pleased because you're on a speed walk towards Zion. You want to get there. Now, that's the point with anxiety. Just start where you are and apply the promises of God and obey the commandments of God to the best of your ability by the grace of God until you get home. But he says to us, all of us, do not be anxious. And uh, this is, of course, impossible like all the other commandments apart from the grace of God. So, once again, we said a wonderful thing about a commandment. Like Augustine said... Command what thou wilt and grant what thou commandest. So command what you will and grant the ability to keep that command. So here we go. We're going to ask him to grant uh, to uh, the commandments provision for us. Now, when we move to the second half of verse 25 into verse 32, we get the answer to the question, why? And the answer is, because. And I want you to notice four becauses. The first one is in the second half of 25. 25B, your life is more than things. Your life is more than things. Here is what Jesus is saying. Why will you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or about your body? Is not life more than the food that you're going to eat. Is your, isn't your personal life of more value to God than the food He's going to give you? Is not your body more valuable to God than the clothes He's going to give you to put on your back? Don't you realize it's not the food He values and the clothing He values. He values you, silly. And so it's, it's an uh, uh, what you saw. If you read Stott on this, you saw that these are what we call a fortiori. That's Latin for "to the stronger." That means from the uh, from the weaker argument uh, to the no, from the stronger argument to the weaker argument. So, in other words, if you prove the stronger argument, then the weaker argument is naturally true. And so he's going to he's going to do that and when he talks about the ravens, and when he talks about the grass of the field. If God loves that, then that's even a stronger argument to show that He loves you uh, because you're, you're of more value than birds and grass. Well, here He's saying if God takes care of the food and if He takes care of clothing, don't you think He'll take care of your life and your body? So the first why is because you are more than the mere things that you have and God values you as a person. So realize it, you're the crown of the creation you're the royal family. He's the king in the family, and he's going to take care of his royal family. What king would be honored if he didn't take care of his own family? So he values you more than the rest of his dominion. All If you look in Genesis 1 and 2, why are the animals there? So that you have, you have food, for one thing, but so that you have animal companionship. Why are the trees of the field there for you to have food to eat off the tree? Why does the the Pentecost teach us that the stars are in the sky so that you will have light by night? It's all about you, which is all about Him because you are His children and He wants you to have fireworks at night. You know, these wonderful fireworks displays. You know, last July 4th, I remember seeing for about an hour this incredible fireworks display. But nothing can match the fireworks that we have every night if you just turn out the lights and take a look at God's fireworks up there. It's unbelievable. He's put it there for you, says Pentateuch. So the, you're the crown of the creation and, and everything is there for us to behold and to enjoy. Your life is more than things. Believe it. Now, secondly, why? Because you are more valuable than birds and grass. These are the fortiori arguments. Your father cares for you. Look at the phrase in verse twenty eight. He's your heavenly father. He feeds. He personally feeds the birds. You wanna know how the birds get fed? God feeds them. He takes care of them. That doesn't happen by accident. How do the birds how do the birds have their intuitions and their instincts from the time that they're born? How do they know to eat? How do their digestive system work? How is it that certain birds are in certain places where their digestive systems will enjoy what's there? How is that all arranged? All by God's creation and His providence. He takes care of them. It's it's a perfectly designed universe. Well, guess what? You're worth more than, than dead weeds. Okay? You're worth more than the little birds that flit around. And He clothes the grass of the field, He says, better than He clothes... The king himself, the earthly king Solomon. And Solomon was a very wealthy man. He could have whatever clothes he wanted to have. And he had plenty of them. And they were of the most bright and radiant colors and of the finest materials. But let me tell you what, doesn't match the flowers of the field. And if you just saw the flower arrangements in the sanctuary in our church just last Sunday, just one more expression. Every time you go in there, you look at those flowers. My stars. What if somebody could actually create something like that? Wouldn't that make them great? Well, it does because God created them and He sustains them and He spreads them out so that we can enjoy them. And you drive down Poplar Avenue and you look at the the leaves turning on the oak trees and you say, now, that's interesting. Every fall, you know, just by chance, they all just turn. No, God gave you that. He did it. It's part of His perfectly ordered universe. And He's telling you something. Of all the things in this universe all the stars and all the galaxies, all the turning leaves and all the beautiful flowers of the field, I love you more than all of them. And I'm taking this whole universe and I'm preparing it as your inheritance. This is your inheritance. So how could you possibly think that He forgot about you? It's amazing how Israel in the wilderness and Israel in their times in Babylon and Israel during their times of Roman oppression would think God had forgotten them. It's insane to think that God has forgotten you because He takes care of the little birds and He takes care of the little weeds and He will definitely take care of you. So that's a because. How about that? Well, there's a third because. If you look in verse 27, you'll see worry doesn't work. (laughs) Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Tell me the last time worry has added an hour to somebody's life. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, tell me the last time that worry has put a hair back on your head. Some of you all have been worrying a lot. <laughs> you know how, How's worry going to earn the income next year? When's the last time worry really worked for you? You said, man, I couldn't have done that without a lot of worry. Man, if I hadn't been anxious about that, I'd never gotten that done. Tell me the last time you said that. Listen, good old Americans, pragmatists, people who like to do things that work the right way, it doesn't work. Stop it. It's foolish. It is counterproductive. It's undermining everything you're trying to accomplish. Let me tell you something. If you want peace in your heart, if you want to be able to just walk about with a sense of joy and well-being, let me tell you what will destroy it, anxiety. If you'd like to love your wife and have her just in the crosshairs, of your existence, so that everything you're doing is for the purpose of pleasing her and serving her and making her life happy, let me tell you something that will undermine that. Worry. You know why? Worry makes you think about who? Yourself. When you're anxious, you're thinking about numero uno. You're thinking about one person only. That's yourself. That's what worry does to you. That's the reason in the Taylor Johnson temperament analysis that we, ha- we have many of our premarital couples go through. And there are nine categories of your personality uh, that have to do with your relationship. One of those categories is whether you worry. Because when you're worrying, and if you are the worrying type, it's going to be counter-relational. It's going to be anti-relational. It's something you have to work on. And there are some things you can do about this. Don't go to movies that make you worry. Don't read books that make you worry. If sleep and recreation cut down the anxiety do it because you owe it to your wife because when you're worrying you're thinking about one person yourself so that's the reason jesus says do not be anxious because it's completely unproductive in your marital relationship let me ask you this when's the last time your kids came to you and said dad Man, thanks for being such a warrior. I just don't know how I'd have gotten through life if you hadn't reared me with worry, you know? Your worries really gave me confidence in the Lord. I want to thank you for that great heritage you gave me. And you know what? I'm trying to be as big a warrior as you are. When's the last time your kid said that to you? I'm telling you what now, guys. You cannot rear children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if you're worried about them. Now, I'm serious. Some guys think it's actually a virtue to worry about their kids because somehow they think that means you'll love them. No, it doesn't. It means you'll love yourself. And you're worried that your kids are not going to do what you want them to do for your own peace of mind or your own bank account, like get a job, or you know they're not going to get married the way you want them to get married so that whatever it is you want will be fulfilled. When you worry, you're not thinking about your kids. You're thinking about yourself. That's where worry comes from. So worry doesn't help you with relationships. Well, let me tell you what else worry doesn't do. doesn't help you with your business. Right now, who knows whether that cliff, how, how deep it is out there. Who knows how far it is out there from us. I don't know. Are you trying to manage your investments so that you can just turn them all into cash about one week before the whole thing crashes? Reinvest back in the market, pick it back up and double your money. If you're living like that, you probably ought to worry. There's some things you can do that a wise man would do that will keep you from worrying, where you, you don't try to suck the last ounce of uh, a material uh, uh, blessing out of this life because you know you're stinking rich and you're going to inherit all the world uh, in, in about, you know, some of you, just a few years, <clears throat> some of you, a few decades. You're going you're gonna to get it all. And so you don't worry and you don't manage your life like you have to drain the last ounce of uh, the last dollar out of your bank account, uh, you know, and your three score and 10. And when you live life like that, you don't make good decisions. The investors, those in the investment business who are making the best decisions are the ones who are the coolest, aren't they? And when things went down last time, they didn't switch everything out of worry. no. They, they were cool, calm, and collected, and they made good business investments. And you know as well as I do, the ones you trust to manage your money are the ones who stay calm during tough times. I tell you what now, when I'm in surgery, I don't want my doctor coming in and going, oh, man, I'm not sure I've ever seen this surgery before. Oh, my stars. Uh, Let's see, what what did that medical book say? Uh, Golly, uh, uh, give me the x-rays. Do we have the right patient? Is it the left leg or the right? You know, I don't want a surgeon doing that. I want a guy who's cool, calm, and collected. You know, gentlemen, you know it. Nobody's business in this room is advanced by anxiety. Nobody's. And everybody's business is advanced with trust in the Lord that brings peace in your heart. Everybody's business, everybody's relationships, everybody's soul. So, hey, how about it? Let's get on with it. He says, do not be anxious because it doesn't work. And he says, which of you by being anxious could add a single hour to his span of life? It's not going to help you. And what, what is worry about? Generally, about things over which you have about zero control you're worried about where the cliff is and how deep it is and whether it is, you have absolutely no control over that. It's beyond your control. Why are you acting as though it's your responsibility? It's not. You know, you can leave that in the hands of the Lord. Cast your burdens upon Him. Now, fourth because is worry makes you look like an unbeliever. And this is probably the worst of them all. We've said that worry is unproductive in all of your relationships. It's unproductive in your sense of well-being. It's unproductive in your work. Completely unproductive. It's most unproductive in your relationship with God. Because what you're saying is, when you're all worried and tied into a knot, hey everybody, I'm a phony. Hey, you want to know what a hypocrite looks like? Me! I say I trust in God. I'm not trusting in Him. I'm worried out of my mind. That's the problem with the worry. Its chief concern is, as he says here, Therefore do not be anxious, verse 31, 32. What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles do that. That's Gentile behavior. You see, once again, throughout, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's comparing us to Gentiles. He's comparing us to scribes and Pharisees. Here it's the Gentiles. Gentiles, of course they worry because their gods are capricious. Their gods are completely unpredictable. Their gods are not faithful either to one another nor to human beings. You have to manipulate the gods of Rome and Greece. You have to try this sacrifice, this prayer, this little ritual... You have to say your incantations, and then you're not sure what they're going to do. That is truly the way those gods are. Now, those gods don't exist, but that's the way they're portrayed. So if you're worshiping those gods, you are going to be one nervous person. You're like a cat on a hot tin roof. You have no idea what these gods are going to do. But Jesus is saying, that's not your God. Your God is your Father. He is completely devoted to you. And he's not like these idols in Greek, uh, Greece and Rome uh, you know, trying to control their little turf. No, this God owns all the gods. And he owns the entire universe. He controls it. So he's controlling everything. You, so you have, you have complete sovereignty over the, 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 this material world. And then you have complete, unadulterated love for his children. That's what you've got. So when you're walking with him, you don't want to act as though you're not. You don't want to act as though He's like the the pagan gods. So your ability not to be anxious is related directly to your ability to trust Him. So, therefore, you can see your anxiety meter is the opposite of your trust meter. The more you're trusting God, the less you're anxious, generally speaking. Now, remember, some started a thousand miles from Zion... Some started 200 miles from Zion. I'm not talking about your natural nervous system. I'm not talking about your rearing. I'm not talking about your starting place. I'm talking about where you're walking. And do you find it true in your life that in your walk with God, you are increasingly able to trust Him with the outcome so that when you get to your deathbed, and that's going to be a lot quicker than you think, when you get to your last time, you're ready because you've been learning to trust Him with everything in your life. And now finally, you can trust Him with your eternal life. You can let your body go. As one saint once said, he said, I've been living, he's an old man, and he said, I've been living the last years of my life kind of outside my body. He said, I'm just, I'm just so by the time I get rid of this body, it's no big deal to me. I've already been living outside of it. Almost like an out-of-body experience. I'm not going to worry about the maintenance of my body. In terms of trying to keep it alive to suck that last day out of it so I can just live one more day. I'm not gonna live that way. I'm not gonna worry. So, by the time you get to your deathbed, you're really ready to let your body go. And what's the ultimate thing you trust God with? It is your body. You're letting your body go six feet under, turn into dust. And you're gonna do that without any anxiety? Wow. Why are you gonna do that? Why are you not gonna be anxious about that? That sounds like, that sounds pretty devastating to me that you just turned into dust six feet under. Well, you're not going to worry because he made a promise to you. He made a promise that he's going to reconstitute that dust into a resurrected body like the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you, and you say, I say, you believe a promise like that? That sounds fantastic. It sounds unbelievable. It sounds incredible. It sounds like a fairy tale. You're going to trust in that? Why? Because I've seen what he's done. He's made other promises and I've seen him do them. I've looked at the universe that he's created. I know he's able to. And I've seen the way that He raised His own Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And I've heard what Jesus has said about it. I trust Him. I've, I've experienced Him. So you experience Him now and then you project. This is what faith does and hope does. It projects what you know already into what you believe His promises, to, to, you believe his promises will be fulfilled. That's what enables you to face your, your last enemy, which is death itself. That's what the believer does. And it reflects your calm in the storm reflects your trust in God. And then that reflects to the outer community God's trustworthiness. And that's the reason he says in this text, just like he says to the disciples in the boat when they were in the storm, oh, you have a little faith. Your anxiety is coming from a little teeny faith. Your faith needs to grow. As faith grows, anxiety goes into the shadows. Now, I want us to notice here that... Uh, when we are trusting Him, it begins with a faith that He will provide and then it issues into a prayer life as we have already seen that we, we, we're not going to be anxious. We're going to, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present our request to Him. And then, as Peter says, we're going to cast all of our burdens on Him. So there really is, like Harry said, a transfer of burdens to the therapist. You, you frankly give them over to Him in your prayers. With thanksgiving. That's the way you do it. And you do it because you trust Him. You trust your Father. And you know He's going to take care of you. Now, let's look for a moment at what I call Stott's caveats. Um, if you read his commentary, you will see he says, this kind of peace and lack of anxiety does not is not four things. Number one, it is... Uh, Stott's caveats involve, first of all, our work. It does not mean that we're lazy because we trust God to provide for us. And there are a couple of things you can look at here. In Colossians 3, Paul says, we're working for Christ. And the reason we work for Him and the reason we work hard is not because we're trying to prove anything or because we're anxious. We work hard because we love Him and because we're about His kingdom and everything that we're doing is on His agenda. So we work hard because we're in love, not because we're afraid. And gentlemen, these are two different different worlds. You can look at two men, they're both working hard. But one is working hard because he's really afraid. He doesn't trust that his father will provide for him. So he's got to provide for himself. And he's a workaholic. Or he doesn't have any meaning in life unless he's always working. Or he doesn't want to have to face the realities of a bad marriage. So he just works 75 hours a week. Just stays at work. There are all kinds of reasons to work hard. But over here you have a man who's working hard because he loves Christ. He loves his family. He loves the people that he works with. And his whole life is compelled by love, not by fear and anxiety. Two different worlds, same number of hours in the job sometimes. But it doesn't mean because we don't worry that we don't work hard. Actually, just the opposite. If we love our Father, we want to work for Him. Secondly, it doesn't mean that we don't care for the poor and don't share with them. We do share with them. And you'll notice the Old Testament teaches us not to worry too. But in Deuteronomy 15, the instruction is, okay, we're not going to worry about the poor. We're going to give to the poor. It's the one who doesn't worry who is generous. You see, if some people who are looking for loopholes will say, why should I worry about the poor? God feeds the ravens. He'll feed them too. You know, he gave me a coat. He'll give them a coat. Well, let me tell you how he gives them a coat. Is that he takes the ones who have two coats and he says, I want you to give your brother a coat. And that's how he does it. And that's the reason that your brother doesn't worry. Because your brother, who doesn't have a coat, knows that God, his father, is talking to his other brothers who have two coats. And He's telling them to share one of their coats with them. That's the reason they don't worry. And they, they know that God can do wonderful things. Right now, let me tell you, right now I have no doubt there are people in our city who are praying for a coat. And they've worried about whether they're going to have something to wear. And then they've realized, you know, I'm just going to ask the Lord about this. And they're praying for it right now. And you know what's going to happen? God's going to put it on our hearts to bring coats in two weeks. Those are going to get delivered and they're going to, they're going to say rightly, God provided my coat. And he did. Look how God does it. He does it through his providence of moving through people. That's one of his favorite ways to work is through his people. So you can see not worrying doesn't mean I don't care about the poor. Just the opposite. Because I'm not worried about my little old self, now I'm more generous than ever and I concern myself. I don't worry, but I concern myself with the needs of other people. And so, because I'm not worried, there's a looser grip on things so that others can have. And what we're finding right now in the States and in the world is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. It's going this way. The gap that we had 30 years ago has doubled between the rich and the poor. It's because the rich are anxious. And they don't want to let go of anything and every time they gain another little step up in their lifestyle they get used to that step and you know what that step does makes them want even more they get a they get a nice car that actually starts and runs doesn't have a flat tire well now they want the best car and after they get the best car they want two of them it just this is what happens it's the it's the price of of materialism, and there are books written on this right now, how your appetite actually grows with your income. It's like a drug. It's killing us, and it's killing the poor. And all of our tax policies, you can see it. The tax policies are, don't touch those rich people. Look, I am not an economist, and I know that we need to generate jobs, and I know that it's people with capital that generate jobs, and I love our economic system. It's not... not, uh, uh, perfect, but it's probably the best one of the imperfect systems that are available in the world. So I, I'm glad that we have a capitalist system. And capitalism works on capital. You've got to have capital. I understand this. But in addition to that, I'm quite convinced that our tax policy is driven by rich people who want to be richer. And and look what's happening to the poor. There are more homeless, more people without jobs. You just see it going right like that. That's natural behavior. What happens... What Stott is saying is when your anxiety is lowered, you become more interested in the needs of other people around you and you take that to heart as well as your own interests. Also, Stott says this doesn't mean that we don't endure suffering. We must persevere. So because you don't worry doesn't mean you're not going to have troubles. Oh, my stars. I've seen some people who don't worry who've got all kinds of reasons to worry. (laughs) I look at them and say, you're not worried. You ought to be. You're you're burdened down with amazing things in your life. Gentlemen, those are not signs that God has abandoned you. It's not His, His displeasure with you. We don't know why He does these things except for this. We know that He does them, number one, for His glory. He's getting glory out of you when you suffer. With faith in Him. Number two, we know that He is preparing you for a better place. And whatever discipline you're going through, it's just like a good workout before you run the 100-yard dash. Your coach it makes it hell for you before you actually enter the race. And then when you enter the race, you, you realize why He put you through all that training. That's, I know that's what God is doing. It's all for our good and for His glory. That much I know. But the details, I can't figure this out. I do not know why so, so many of us have had burdens placed on us which would kill an elephant. And Stott is saying quite rightly that when you don't worry doesn't mean you're not going to have troubles. What it means is you're going to face your troubles very differently. You're going to face them with trust in your Father. As Job said, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. So, not worrying means that you will persevere through trouble. That's exactly what it means with loving trust in your Father. Fourthly, it doesn't mean that we don't plan for the future. We are not Alfred E. Newman. You know, when I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me have Playboy, so they let me have Mad Magazine. And I remember, Alfred E. Newman, what, me, worry? Uh, you know, just a little idiot, you know. My parents really didn't like the magazine because it made me a little idiot too. But I just thought it was funny, which tells you something about my humor these days. It's kind of mad magazine humor. But uh, we're not people who don't plan and who are careless about the future. We're not people who say, oh, I'm not worried, so I'm not going to prepare for my retirement. No, you better prepare for your retirement. And if you're behind, then do the best you can to catch up. Not because you're afraid or because you don't trust God, but precisely because you do trust God. And you trust him to give you commandments that are, there are plenty of them in the Proverbs about how to take care of yourself. And you don't want to be a burden to other people, precisely because you love them, not because you're worried. So it's really an act of love to be responsible for yourself and those under your care. So you can see it in the Apostle Paul's life in Romans 15 when he plans to go to Spain, he has plans. I don't know if he got there or not. Scholars don't know for sure. We speculate he probably did, knowing Paul. But there were other plans Paul made, like going into Bithynia, and God trumped it. The Holy Spirit told him not to go into Bithynia and took him across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. But Paul still makes plans. And so trusting the Lord doesn't mean you don't plan for the future, think about the future, and try to organize your life and manage your time and manage your resources. No, being a non-warrior makes you a better manager a better planner, a better strategist because you're operating not out of fear but out of love and hope, trust. And you see it also with Nehemiah. He planned. Man, when you look at what Nehemiah did to lead those people to rebuild that wall and how every little family had a little part of that wall, man, he planned that thing 360 degrees around Jerusalem. And he planned to get them all at work. And he told them he was going to make it very miserable for them if they didn't. I mean, so, And he rewarded them when they did. And they praised the Lord. And he planned the worship service. I mean, Nehemiah planned everywhere. It was precisely because he trusted the Lord to work through him That he was willing to plan. And this is the reason that if you have hope, you end up being a planner. If you don't have hope and you're in despair, you don't plan for anything. That's one of the biggest disadvantages of being poor. You have no hope and so you don't plan for anything. But if you believe that good things will happen, you plan. So if you trust your Father to take care of you, you will plan all the more in a wise way. Now lastly, how? He says, seek Him. Seek first. There's one thing we're to seek. You remember City Slickers with Billy Crystal? You know, the City Slicker who wanted to, take a, uh, he wanted to take a cattle drive. So he gets on this cattle drive and Jack Palance, you remember, was on a horse. Tough old man, leathery skin. And then he made it tough for Billy Crystal. And Billy Crystal says, how do you do this? And he says, took a cigarette he said, one thing, one thing. I was thinking in the movie, this is going to be good. I want to see what Palance is going to say the one thing is. Of course, you never get to the one thing because there's not one thing. Palance doesn't know. But here's where he's right. There is one thing. One thing. You don't want to be anxious? Keep one thing in front of you. What is it? The kingdom of God. And it's really a way of doubling, doubling down on this. He says the kingdom of God and his righteousness, really those two are one thing. It's the key category in life. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, seek help me to seek your righteousness. Peter says, we died to sin and became alive to righteousness. Paul says, your, enslaver, your enslavement to the things of this world has been broken so that you can be now slaves of righteousness. Seek Christ and His kingdom and His righteousness. Seek the things in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what righteousness is. That's what he's been talking about in Romans 5 and 6. I mean, uh, Matthew 5 and 6 is righteousness. He says, Seek that with all your heart. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, all these people are going after sex, they're going after money, they're going after heresies. Renounce all that. And he says, O man of God, pursue righteousness, pursue the things on the Sermon on the Mount. And lastly, his kingdom is righteousness, not things. Let Let me close with this. Some of you know the name Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was one of the most famous, prolific journalists of the 20th century. He knew everybody. Stalin, Hitler, Churchill. I mean, he interviewed them all. He was the editor of Punch Magazine, which was a real cynical, far-left magazine. And, and basically, Muggeridge was an anarchist. He would, just, he would just destroy anything. And he had the wit and the vocabulary to do it. He then gets converted at 65 years of age. This crusty, old, philandering, drunken, uh, cynical journalist gets converted. He's a Roman Catholic. And if, you've read his, uh, if you read uh, his theology, you'll find that he, he didn't live long enough to get all this theology straightened out. Uh, even his view of Christ was not uh, according to the Apostles' Creed. But still, he loved him. And there's a movie that he did... At the very end of his, right before he died, it was called A 20th Century Testimony. If you've seen the movie, it starts in an old graveyard in, in England. And there's, it's very macabre. He's, he's in the graveyard and he's talking about his death. And he's an old man. And he just walks around the graveyard. And then he's saying, you know, becoming an old man, I've really learned what life is all about. And he says, here's what it is. And this is the way he summarized it. He said, life is ultimately about seeking God. And having sought Him, finding Him. And having found Him, loving Him. Pretty good summary. Let's pray. Father, help us to seek You, Your kingdom, Your righteousness, the one thing with all our hearts. And seeking You enable us to find You. Finding You help us to love You and not to worry about anything.